Rise and shine, Mr. Freeman. Rise and shine. Not that I wish to imply you have been sleeping on the job. No one is more deserving of a rest, and all the effort in the world would have gone to waste until... Well, let's just say your hour has come again. episode of classic gaming brothers i'm zach and i'm seth and we are the classic gaming brothers that's right we are the classic gaming brothers that's right that's we are right. that's right we are we are remember those episodes when we used to talk about what episode it was didn't we do that like two episodes ago i don't remember what episode this is <laughs> <laughs> i actually don't either i think it's 164 do you remember when we did guests every 10 episodes after Ooh. episode 25 i think we haven't had a guest visit us since um barry i think barry's still here i think we locked him in by accident most of our guests are still here <laughs> they're with us in spirit i was gonna make a i am jesus joke but um that was last episodes uh, that was last game. episodes yeah yeah what about this week seth what have you been playing thanks for asking i don't think i've thanked you enough i don't think you've thanked me at all <laughs> <laughs> no i try not to <laughs> recently i was playing uh the dig by lucas arts it was released in 1995 for pc and macintosh the dig is a point and click adventure game where you play as commander boston Lowe, who is in charge of a mission to blow up an asteroid out of the path of earth so there's an asteroid coming and he takes a crack team of people to go and blow this asteroid out of the way of earth and that team consists of the pilot which makes sense a technician who happens to also be running for congress i guess that makes sense and a linguist who's also a reporter <laughs> well the reporter part maybe but to go set nuclear bombs on an asteroid i don't guess to report what's happening she's deliberately not doing that oh no then she's on not the doing mission job. <laughs> on the mission she's being uh, an astronaut Anyway, in true LucasArt fashions, it's more than just that story. Uh, it unfolds to be a discovery story. And fun fact about The Dig is it was originally conceived by Steven Spielberg, and he wanted to make it an episode of Amazing Stories. And then later he wanted to make it as a film. And then he said, this is way too much money for either Amazing Stories or a movie. And it just... It went into, like, Steven Spielberg's collection of ideas that he just, you know, puts up on that shelf and just forgets about. And then one day, he sat down with his buddies uh, George Lucas, Ron Gilbert, and Noah Falstein, and they thought about making this idea a video game. And then they did, and they released The Dig. 1990s George Lucas and Steven Spielberg must have been a lot of fun. Yeah, they were really close, too, I believe. I think they're still close, but that was, like... I mean, that was pre-prequels for 
for Lucas. Yep. So he was just sitting there with a whole bunch of Star Wars money being like, what can I blow this on? And apparently it was The Dig, which was probably arguably cheaper to make as a video game than make it to a movie. It would go on to, uh, it received pretty well. Some people thought that it was a little too complicated. Also, LucasArts was in the habit of doing kind of sillier adventure games yeah yeah. and the dig was not the dig was a very serious science fiction game so there's that so what have you been uh recently been playing well seth i have been playing mech warrior uh for the super nintendo mech warrior was developed by beam software and published by activision in 1993 and it's based on the pc game mech warrior which itself is based on the battletech universe battletech being the war game franchise i had pretty good time so i played mech warrior 3 on the pc because i think we had a copy of it and i don't think i've played the original mech warrior but i found that it was for the super nintendo and i was like i'll give it a shot and i was playing it and yeah i had a good time it's a first person game you play as a pilot who is controlling a mech and you blow up other mechs because you are a mech warrior. The You go into your first mission, it's like destroy other mechs. You kind of just walk around, other mechs come at you, you blow them up, and this is mission complete. And then yeah, you go on to the next. And there's kind of a storyline. You can go to like a cafeteria and talk to people in the cafeteria who are just like chilling. And you can go to a store and you can upgrade your mech or buy a whole new mech if you don't like the mech that you have. If you're maybe getting beaten by the mechs that you're fighting but uh it's a pretty fun game it's i think it's actually pretty well done for first person for the super nintendo though there is some uh graphical issues in terms of like sometimes when the enemy mechs are far away they kind of just look like two dots on the screen and nothing else and then when they get closer they kind of look like three dots on the screen and then four dots and then they are another mech who's blowing you up so there's kind of like not really a good scaling that you get of uh of the sprites when they're getting closer to you that you might get if you're playing it maybe on the pc or if you're playing one of the later games but beyond that it was, it was pretty fun uh and i'll have to try out the pc game and some of the other mech warrior games yeah you can even try out the battletech game there's a video game called battletech that was recently released after a kickstarter and it is a strategy mech game that came out i want to say 2018 yeah i own it it's fun it's a good fear into like strategy mech games battletech the war game from what i've been told i had a friend who really liked playing it and it was uh complicated anyway today's episode is not about war games it is about a game uh, that is a sequel to a game we've already talked about in fact in episode four 160 episodes ago <laughs> back in episode four we talked about half-life one the seminal first person shooter developed by valve software which uh we also spent oh, quite some time talking i think about valve i think we talked more about them when we talked about counter-strike and uh kind of the nature of them being like a cabal which is like they're very flat structure uh, so we're not really going to go too much into detail on that in this episode but today's episode we are going to focus on half-life 2 which next year will be 20 years old um That's right. so there's really no reason to talk about it today but we are going to so we don't have to talk about it next year or who knows maybe we'll talk about it next year yeah because we'll forget before we get into the history of half-life 2 i wanted to talk a little bit about our memories so i for one remember playing half 
Half-Life 2 after I played Half-Life 1 on the old computer that my mother and our stepfather had back down in the basement of our our, our home and uh, that's where I played Half-Life 1 and then I found a copy of Half-Life 2 and I played that and I was really impressed by the physics engine especially the fact that you could kind of like just chuck things around at like full speed and it had kind of a weighty smack to them when they when they hit things like you could throw like paint buckets at people it was fun but what really stuck out to me was just one segment of the game and that was the Ravenholm segment uh, which from a plot point is your character gets cut off from um, some resistance fighters that you meet and you must go through this abandoned town called Ravenholm which is filled with zombies and also a man named Father Gregory who quotes the Bible and shoots a shotgun at people uh, specifically zombies he doesn't like shoot it at you but that stood out to me it's a very terrifying section of the game to this day it still kind of gives me a, a sense of anxiety when I play it even though I'm very familiar with Ravenholm but yeah that, those are some of the memories that stand out to me uh Seth is there anything that you remember in particular about Half-Life 2 or anything that stood out to you about Half-Life 2 I got Half-Life 2 around definitely by Orange Box I may have had it before then when orange box came out it was really when i got a really large appreciation for the valve products but i'm pretty sure i had half-life 2 before then i definitely was more of a fan well, i played more of the multiplayer aspects of the games that came with half-life and half-life 2 like cs source and all those guys that were kind of like spin-offs because they were mods of off the uh the original game but i definitely while playing half-life 2 i really liked the gravity gun i felt that the opening sequence was pretty cool and like you know like running from the combine and stuff like that it was kind of like unsettling and also uh, it was paced really well and i felt like the story was just really good i also really liked Father Gregory. I feel like in any sort of zombie situation, there needs to be a Father Gregory now. Just period in life. I I really liked Father Gregory. I think that he's I think he's a great character. Greetings, brother. And so we meet at last. My advice to you is aim for the head. <laughs> But yeah, so I I really liked um, all the physics-based puzzles. Obviously, those physics-based puzzles were expounded upon once they released like Portal and all of that. But really, Half-Life 2 got... I think I played Half-Life 2 before I played Half-Life 1. I also like all the um, the episodes, which I, I think we'll talk a little bit about in this yeah, episode. Yeah, we'll cover those and we go with the legacy. But uh, like episode... I really liked episode 1 and 2. Still waiting to see what happens. I think in my lifetime, um, I will see a, a Half-Life 3 release. I hope so. We got Alex, but like... Did they say that it was going to be a trilogy? They literally said that episode three was going to come out. Oh, that's right. I meant I meant they don't need to do a Half-Life 3. They do need to do an episode three for episode two or Half-Life 2. That was a weird... That was when episodic gaming was really like a big deal. Kind of go on continuative memories. One thing I do like was that they did make sure that Alex would be a character. Alex is a character who you team up with in the game. She's the daughter of a character uh, that you meet named Eli Vance. And the cool thing about her is that they made sure that she wasn't a character who needed to be like defended like an escort mission character like she has her own gun she uh is 
pretty much, I think, immune to, like, everything. And she can handle herself, which I like in games. They do something similar in The Last of Us, where Ellie is designed to be a standalone character in herself who's not really an escort character, um, where you might have to save her at points, but she can hold her own and, uh, you know, she uses weapons and can defend herself. You don't necessarily need to always be defending her. And I like that with Alex. Alex is, you know, there. She's helping. Um, she's not necessarily always in need of being defended, which I think is a nice twist as opposed to having an escort character where you have to like constantly be minding them to make sure they don't die, which is always obnoxious. Yeah, that, I did. I did like the fact that Alex can actually do something. Yeah, versus... like she she fights and she opens doors and stuff. And yeah, she gives you snarky comments versus what that that stupid water person in Jabu Jabu's belly. Oh yes, in, yeah, uh, yeah. Zelda, that, Legend yeah. of Zelda. Ocarina. That you have to like pick up at one point right because you yeah. have to no you only have to pick oh up. right because she refuses to move <laughs> yes yes to carry the princess around yeah to get into the development history, uh, Half-Life 2 began development shortly after the release of Half-Life. Uh, the original team in 1999 consisted of 82 people, uh, which excluded voice cast. With the voice cast, they were just about at an even 100. Part of the reason that Half-Life 2 began development was largely because Valve and Valve's president, Gabe Newell, thought it was important to innovate on the first-person shooter genre. Because he wanted it to be this grand project, he actually gave the team no deadline and an unlimited budget reportedly even promising to fund it out of pocket if necessary. I think it's also an important note that Gabe Newell is probably one of the most positive people in gaming. Yeah, yeah. And is somebody he looks at really... One of his main tenets is progressing technology and gaming forward, regardless of cost. Yeah, yeah. I mean, his his motto, from my understanding, going into Half-Life 2, was that it, if the game didn't change first-person shooters, it wouldn't be worth it. Yeah, you can still see that happening with the Steam Index, with yeah, Half-Life yeah. Alex, with the Steam Deck. They do these things things that are sometimes you know you have like the steam controller and the steam yeah they do some silly like things steam link they're still good products like valve is really good at making good product they're just sometimes not well received but then they do stuff like the steam deck and the valve index where they make something they sell it for a very good price and they do it because they're trying to push and that half-life is the same deal with like half-life 2 the first person shooters that we got after half-life 2 benefited from Half-Life 2. And in order to create something that was innovative, they had to build on the back of something innovative, uh, which is where the in-house engine Source came to be. The Source engine was a successor to the Gold Source engine, which it was, which is what uh, the original Half-Life and original Counter-Strike games were built in. Gold Source, as some may remember if they listen back to our Counter-Strike episode or our Half-Life episode back in episode four, is a heavily modified version of the Quake engine used for quake 2 uh so heavily modified but still john carmack the developer of the quake engine stated that there are still little bits of quake in the code for half-life 2 in a post that he made back in 2004 the name source actually came about due to forks in the code that the developers needed to work with when half-life was close to launch they didn't want to risk damaging the code that was being used for the final game. So when they were making adjustments to the code for future projects, they created a fork.
fork, and internally they labeled one as gold source and the other as source. Gold source spelled gold SRC and source spelled SRC. The idea was that the code that was currently released would be the gold, as in the gold standard. But over time, the name stuck for the newer engine as just source, and they ended up not calling it like gold source in the future. They just referred to the old engine as gold source and their current new engine as source. And the team in the source engine was also working to integrate the Havoc physics engine into the game to replicate real world physics. And this was a time and day where like you could get a physics card a dedicated physics card for your computer, which was a silly thing, I feel like. Now, this can be seen in the game by how objects interact with each other, like how you can balance a piece of wood by placing weights at the either end of the plank. This program would understand the different physics applied, and the program would be doing actual math to figure out how this would actually work using physics math. So, like, if you have a seesaw and... Um, you put two blocks on one end and a lighter block on the other end. The two blocks on the other end will be heavier and the lighter block will rise. But if you put two blocks on one end and two blocks on the other end, they will even out because they'll be equal weight. And the game would have weights assigned to objects and it would calculate the physics required for things to be moved. And not only did it work with like seesaws, but it also worked with bodies and any falling objects. Now, background characters from Half-Life were given more fleshed out roles within the narrative of the sequel, largely due to how the team saw that the players connected to these minor characters, like Barney, the security guard from Half-Life, became Barney Calhoun in Half-Life 2, and he even refers to a throwaway line in the first game about owing Gordon a beer in Half-Life 2. Catch me later, I'll buy you a beer. About that beer I owed you. It's me, Gordon, Barney from Black Mesa. And I believe Blue Shift was a mod developed by Not Valve. Uh, yeah, Blue Shift was developed by Gearbox and is where the name Barney Calhoun comes from. It's like they just randomly gave it to a security guard that you actually see. So in Half-Life 1, when Gordon's going to work, he passes by a security guard that's standing on a security platform and can't get into the door. In Blue Shift, you are that security guard. <laughs> and they right. brought in that name, Barney Calhoun, and gave it to a full character in Half-Life 2. Correct. And he's... He is that same minor security guard character. Yeah, exactly. He has a much bigger role in Half-Life 2. Another two characters that are also minor characters in Half-Life 1 and then relatively major characters in Half-Life 2 were these two scientists, Isaac Kleiner and Eli Vance. Now, these two scientists would actually... They're, they're not in the first game until they are retconned into the two scientists that you see when you leave the test chamber after the Resonance Cascade in the first game. Yeah. So, originally, they weren't anybody. They were just scientists. But yeah. now... They're Isaac Kleiner and Eli Vance. Yeah, and like Eli says, oh, like Gordon, the last time I saw you, I was sending you up to go get for help. And there's a character when you leave the test chamber who goes like, Gordon, go get for help. That's now Eli, <laughs> canonically. Gordon, you're alive. Thank God for that hazard suit. I'm afraid to move him and all our phones are out. Please, get to the surface as soon as you can and let someone know we're stranded down here. The last time I saw you, I sent you up for help after the resonance cascade. <laughs> I never thought it would take you this long to get back to me. And the, like, scientist that is, like, crouching in the scene, like, 
next to the now Eli is the now canon Isaac. In terms of development of the game itself, uh, in 2001, the engine was starting to become fleshed out and Valve put together some test games like Zombie Basketball and a simulation of street war between citizens and police. By late 2001, they had a showreel that they could present to E3 in 2002. Gabe Newell reportedly let the team work without his input so that he could give them unbiased feedback since he was beginning to work on a little piece of DRM called Steam. Yeah, so he he had his attention divided. Newell reportedly saw this first showreel and actually gave some pretty critical feedback. Um, He thought it didn't show the physics engine in action and was far too dialogue heavy. So he asked that they rework it and they did. And they presented a second showreel that had a a buggy race with like two buggies racing each other, a bunch of head crabs, which you see in the first game, and a shortened dialogue segment that kind of at least gives you a feel for what the dialogue can be like in the game. Newell was impressed by the second showreel and told the team that they would announce Half-Life 2 at E3 2003 and give it a release at the end of that year. The game was shown at E3 2003 with a lot of praise. Uh, Enough praise that they actually won Game of the Show, which is a pretty good thing to do if you don't even have really a game. You just have, like, footage. Newell presented the game and gave a release date of September 30th, 2003. And this was delayed. Uh, And the delay was officially announced on September 23rd of 2003, with a a non-committal holiday release provided as the new release date. The delay announcement was actually so sudden that ATI, the graphics developer, had previously scheduled a promotional event with Valve on Alcatraz, like the island, to be on the same day as the Half-Life 2 release. Now, as the game wasn't being released and the event couldn't be canceled, Gabe Newell had to show up and he would show a Source Engine demonstration, gave a speech, and then promptly left without answering questions. Earlier that month, before the uh, the announcement of the delay, the source code was also stolen by a German hacker. Fans were able to use that code to compile a playable version of the game, and it was leaked online. Because that's how things happened back then. But it was also evident how much of the game was still in progress. Hence the delay. Surprisingly, when you steal code that is unfinished, the product will be unfinished. The hacker, Axel Gembe, felt bad about his actions of stealing stealing the source code. And in March of 2004, he reached out to Gabe Newell and he confessed. He explained to Gabe that he was just a fan and he had no ill intentions. Gabe told him to come visit Valve Software and he'll conduct a job interview for him. But Gabe was secretly planning to hold a sting operation with the FBI to arrest him. But before this could take place, German police arrested uh, Axel and he was sentenced to three years probation in 2006. Back to Half-Life 2 development, the game continued to be worked on into 2004 after missing the ambiguous 2003 holiday mark. It's estimated that it took $1 million a month to develop. After some various changes, such as cutting a segment set about a ship called the Borealis, the game was released in October of 2004, and then the game would be later released uh, through Steam. The game came out in multiple different packages. There was a bronze package that included Half-Life 2 and Counter-Strike Source, and silver and gold packages that contained Half-Life Source and Day of Defeat Source, uh, because they did take the original Half-Life and put it into Source. Yeah, except they didn't do anything with the graphics. They just, like, dropped the game into Source. It's not very good. If you want to play a good Source port of Half-Life, play Black Mesa. It's amazing. Yes, yes. To get into the storyline, 
Half-Life 2 takes place 20 years after Gordon Freeman was pulled from the Black Mesa facility by the mysterious G-Man. For place setting, Gordon Freeman in Half-Life 1 is a 27-year-old MIT graduate working what's implied to be his very first job, who is tasked with one day sticking a piece of crystal inside of a laser beam and then aliens invade. That's a basic plot summary for Half-Life 1. Gordon then has to go and fight like the alien god and uh, after he fights the alien god a mysterious G-Man who's a man wearing a suit that speaks with a weird inflection plucks him out of time. Half-Life 2 is 20 years later. Gordon is still 27 because he's been in like stasis for 20 years. Uh, he awakens aboard a train and the train is arriving into a crumbling East European city called City 17. He soon meets with an old friend of his from Black Mesa, Barney Calhoun, who takes him to see an old colleague of his, Dr. Kleiner, all conveniently located in this Eastern European city after they had worked in a New Mexico research facility. Gordon learns through firsthand experience and what is explained to him that the Earth was conquered by an alien race called the Combine. After a war that lasted only seven hours, the Earth surrendered to the Combine and Gordon's old boss, Wallace Breen, negotiated the surrender and was given the status as the ruler of the planet, albeit through a kind of a puppet position. Now, Kleiner, again, Gordon's old colleague, had been working alongside another old colleague, Dr. Vance, on a teleportation device. Uh, the teleportation device fails and Gordon has to go on foot to the Resistance headquarters. Uh, you must fight a ton of monsters, combine officers, as you make your way to the Resistance headquarters, uh, where you meet up with Alex, who is uh, Eli's daughter, and together you must stop Dr. Breen. So let me, uh, let me place that everyone for you real quick. This MIT graduate goes to work at a New Mexico government research facility, accidentally opens a portal to an alien world, kills alien god, gets taken out of time, comes back 20 years later, where all of his friends and colleagues now just are conveniently located in one city that is also the capital of the new alien-controlled Earth, and they must stop Gordon's old boss. Which I think that makes sense, right? Because these people might have been friends. If they're friends with Gordon, then they probably are friends. Let's be real, Zach. There weren't a lot of people that worked at Black Mesa. <laughs> There's not a lot of people you see. It's a big facility. <laughs> they probably all knew each other. I also really like the Combine in Half-Life 2. Um, I think that the uh, aliens themselves... So, the, like, you have your facehuggers and stuff like that, which I don't believe... Are they part of the Combine? I no. Guess. So, the Combine controls headcrabs because they right. conquered Zen which is where the headcrabs come from. Right, which is in Half-Life 1. To get a little bit into the lore, when Gordon opened the Resonance Cascade, a signal was sent throughout the universe, and that signal allowed the Combine to come to Earth. It took them some time, because Combine are really bad at teleportation, which is a plot point, and they first went through Zen, conquered Zen, and with the... Nihilinth, which is the alien god that you kill, dead. Zen was kind of in a power vacuum anyway, so they were able to, like, scoop up aliens from Zen and use them as their invasion force. I like that the Combine also very human-looking. Yeah, yeah, with the, like, cops and stuff. Yeah, they just look like cops wearing, like, white masks. Yeah, they have guest masks, yeah. Yeah, and then they make, like, weird noises. When you kill them. Yeah, when you kill them, yeah, yeah, yeah. They Don't they go, like, blah, 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 blah. And then they go boop. Yeah, there's a couple types of combine. Those are like combine soldiers, but then they're like what they're called the advisors, which look like big beans with arms. Then there's like their walkers. Yeah, the striders. Yeah. Striders. Which are those their own alien or are those like vehicles? They're like mechs, but they're also organic. They're like giant crabs. <laughs> they're like giant crabs. Yeah. yeah they're, 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 they're basically big lobsters crabs. with laser guns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, I'm 
feel like I want to play Half-Life 2 again. You should play Half-Life 2. Now, uh, the gameplay of Half-Life 2 is actually, it's pretty simplistic. It's it's a first-person shooter. You control Gordon Freeman. Uh, similar to Half-Life 1, Gordon never speaks. And there really aren't any, like, cinematics or cutscenes. There's a few moments where you lose control. Um, at the very beginning, G-Man is, like, directly talking to you. You can't really control anything. He also pauses time at the end of the game. And there's another moment where you are put into, like, a like a weird prisoner bed thing and you're brought to like dr breen and you talk to him and like you can move your head around but you can't like move your your body um so that's kind of like one way they do the cinematic but all of the cinematics when they do occur in those brief moments are done in the game engine they're not pre-rendered and i think this actually adds a bit to the game it provides you with kind of a more immersive game where you don't necessarily feel pulled out of it to go into these pre-rendered moments you also collect a variety of weapons everything from a crowbar classic for gordon freeman to a gravity gun which is kind of like a combination of a multi-tool slash weapon you can use to throw boxes around or throw explosives into people's faces uh and you also solve physics puzzles uh using the gravity gun or just using your own brute strength um such as counterweights simple physics puzzles but cool to have so um how did Half-Life 2 do? The game was released to incredible success, quickly becoming the 17th best-selling PC game between the years of 2000 and 2006, which being released in 2004, they only had two years to beat out six. By August of 2006, it had sold 680,000 copies and would go up to sell upwards of 12 million copies worldwide by... 2011. Uh, the game also received a lot of positive praise, with Edge Magazine giving it a 10 out of 10, Eurogamer giving it a 10 out of 10, GamePro giving it 5 stars, and Maximum PC giving it an 11 out of 10. Needless to say, the critics and the consumers loved this game. Along with the release on PC, Half-Life 2 was ported to Xbox 360, PS3, Linux, Android, and Mac OS. It was also re-released in the Orange Box in 2007, which contained the two sequels, which we'll cover in a bit, as well as Team Fortress 2 and Portal. Controversially, there are some issues with the distribution with the game. The distribution was to be handled by Vivendi Universal through their Sierra Entertainment subsidiary. Vivendi was looking to be the exclusive distributor of Half-Life 2 to cyber cafes in Asia, which were a major part of the PC market in Asia. If you needed to sell to the Asia market, you targeted cyber cafes. Vivendi argued that their contract with Valve included cyber cafes, but Valve was in the process of getting Steam released, and they wanted Steam to be in cyber cafes. So they were fighting each other in the courts. Uh, eventually, a U.S. federal district court ruled that Vivendi were not authorized to distribute either directly or indirectly Valve games through cyber cafes based on their agreement. The two parties would announce a settlement in 2005 and Vivendi ceased distributing Valve games in August of that year. Part of the agreement also stipulated that Vivendi had to inform distributors and cafes that only Valve had authority to distribute CyberCafe licenses, and the licenses that Vivendi issued were to be revoked. Following this, Valve would partner with Electronic Arts, EA, for retail distribution of their games. Now, let's talk sequels. Because Half-Life 2 is rather infamous when it comes to sequels, uh, there are two episodic sequels that we alluded to earlier. These were released in 2006 and 2007, uh, and they continued the story of the game. The first was called Episode 1, 
The second is called Episode 2. It was called Half-Life 2, Episode 1, and Half-Life 2, Episode 2. Right. Now, Half-Life 2, Episode 1 picks up pretty much exactly where Half-Life 2 ends. Gordon is about to be extracted again by the G-Man, but stopped by a group of Vortigaunts, who are an alien race that help Gordon throughout Half-Life 2. Episode 2 picks up right after the end of episode one, it actually ends on a pretty major cliffhanger, which, spoiler alert, is Alec's father, Eli, being killed by a Combine advisor. Now, a sequel, episode three, was planned and scheduled for release in 2007, but it didn't come out. It is 2023 now, and we still do not have <laughs> episode three but they never canceled it <laughs> that's the thing with valve and that's if that's one of the things with like where they joke about half-life three and we're never gonna get a half-life three or an episode three they never canceled it like officially canceled it it's so then thus it is still in production now information has trickled out over the years about what may have happened to the project it is considered vaporware in that it is effectively canceled without anyone ever saying it. An actual new game in the series has been released in 2020 called Half-Life Alex, and it was released as a VR game, and it served as a prequel to Half-Life 2, and also has some implications about potentially for what the future may hold. But really, if out of anyone who would know, it would be Gabe Newell of Valve. And I don't know if he knows what the future of Half-Life is. My, my favorite meme is that every year Gabe Newell plans to release Half-Life 3 on April 1st, but then he sees everyone making fun of it and he decides not to. <laughs> I honestly believe if I go back to Gabe's type of thought process, right, he... We said at the beginning of this episode that if Half-Life 2 didn't push the first-person shooter genre forward, then it wasn't worth releasing. They did. They released it. It pushed the first-person shooter genre forward. Did Episode 1 and 2 also significantly push the first-person shooter genre forward? Arguably, probably not, right? It told the story. It continued to tell the story, and the story is a pretty good story. The next time they released Half-Life Alex, they were pushing forward the virtual reality. And I look at Half-Life less as a story game and more of a thing that Valve uses when they need to push forward on tech. Yeah. I'm surprised they didn't put one on the Steam Deck, like a Half-Life Steam. They actually did. <laughs> well, they did do Half-Life game, but they made um, Aperture Labs game, which is a, it's a really fun game. They make these games to test their products. Yeah. And I feel like that's where Half-Life originally came from. And then now they just, that's my, I don't know, conspiracy thought or whatever is that just Valve just uses Half-Life to like be like, eh, we, need, we have new technology. Uh, yeah, and, uh, I, I can see that. It. I think Half-Life 2, Episode 1 and Episode 2, I think they're very good games, but like you said, I don't think they really do anything for like Source as an engine or or expanding on it. There's some modification. So Half-Life Episode 1, the Source engine is different than Half-Life 2. The, it, the engine was updated, but that's not like that's not like Valve's way of thinking when it comes to new tech. They don't mean updating the same engine. <laughs> they mean yeah, unlike some other companies. Right. They mean re-establishing what it means to be a video game. And I I think that is one of the reasons why if we do see Half-Life 3 or an Episode 3, it probably won't be what we're expecting it to be i 100 percent agree and it may be on something it may be something new an index to uh quantum computing 
they entirely rebuild the engine or something. They do something completely unique. But beyond that, the only other games that relate to the Half-Life universe have been Portal games, um, which take place in the same universe as Half-Life, but aren't really part of the same storyline. Yeah, so Portal takes place in the same universe as Half-Life in the sense that Aperture Science is a competitor to Black Mesa. They actually, they refer to Black Mesa by name multiple times and uh there's like they, they don't like black mesa yeah there's an ongoing joke that cave johnson was actively competing with black mesa which is hilarious because it's like black mesa is this like very serious government funded research facility and aperture science is like we we put holes in things <laughs> i just feel like cave johnson just went a little bonkers oh no it's canonic that he went a little bonkers he developed uh, a very severe disease from ingesting moon dust <laughs> Right. So before that, the Aperture Labs was probably a serious company. Now, that is the Half-Life universe. Two. Half-Life 2. And who knows? Maybe we'll talk more about Half-Life down the road. Who knows? Maybe by episode 264, Half-Life 3 will have been released. But then it won't, it won't be a classic game, so we'd have to wait another 20 years. But maybe we'll cover Portal in some episode, because Portal's getting up there. 2007 was when it was released. Yeah, I think we could talk about Portal. Portal's fun. Uh, In any case, we're going to get into our Retro Rewind. This is the part of the show where we rewind the retro. Ah, Seth had me play Rex Ronin Experimental Surgeon. Yeah, how did you enjoy this game? Oh, I loved it. This game was created by Sculptured Software and published by Rhea Systems. It's an educational game that was developed with support from the United States Agency for the Healthcare Research and Quality. Rhea actually developed a series of games one of those games was also captain novelin so if you remember when i had seth play captain novelin i call this seth's revenge because this game was bad in rex ronin you play as a surgeon by the name of rex ronin who can shrink down to microscopic levels and that's why he is the experimental surgeon uh in the game you must save the life of jake westboro the ceo of blackburn tobacco company who has been smoking since the tender age of 15 however blackburn the company is worried that the world may find out about the dangers of tobacco they are now worried about this even though this is the 90s and they are so worried they send microscopic robots into their ceo's body to kill him and rex ronin must stop the robots or else he will die and you must go into jake's body stop the robots and kill cancer and that's the game and it's really bad the controls are literally all over the place i i don't know what i'm doing half the time uh the boss the like the enemies you fight are really uninteresting it's really the controls that bugged me you press a button your character flips in the air and then you don't you you barely move like you're moving at like a snail's pace as you walk across this level and it's just an ugly game you start off in the guy's mouth and there's like stained teeth and you have to like clean the stained teeth it's just uh, i don't like it anyway i'm all for teaching kids about the dangers of smoking but i wish they did it in a way that was fun because this game made me want to have a cigarette (laughs) next week seth i want you to play bronchi the bronchiosaurus which is a raya systems game I feel like we should do an episode on Rhea Systems. <laughs> At this point, yeah, we might be doing an episode on Rhea Systems. Zach had me play Smart Ball, which was not developed by Rhea Systems, but was in fact developed by Game Freak. Yes, that Game Freak. 
and a company called Systems.com. And was released in Japan in 1991, not as Smart Ball, but as Jerry Boy. In the game, you play as a blue blob, and like a small blue bob, or a blue jelly bean. And you platform across a side-scrolling environment. And since you are a blob, uh, you can fit through like pipes, and you can slide up walls and hills, and slide along the ceilings. The game is okay. I think I would have really enjoyed the game if I was a kid and I didn't have a lot of games to play. Uh, and it was 1992. Uh, but I'm not a kid and it is not 1992. Uh, so it's all right. If you want a mascot platformer, this is a mascot platformer that you can play. I think I would have been better off if I read the manual before I started playing and practicing the controls because there are moves that you can do that you don't get, especially when I generally play games blind without reading manuals and stuff. I tend not to know what I'm doing and that tends to dampen my excitement. So maybe I'll uh, either read the manual or the next game that Zach has me playing, whatever, Bronchial, Bronchosaurus or whatever. Uh, maybe I'll read the manual for it before I play it. I don't think it'll make it any better. <laughs> Well, at least maybe I'll know what I'm doing when I go into it. And as I said, um, in Japan, the game was actually released uh, called Jerry Boy. And in the American game, you have to collect the names for Jerry, but there's no context why you have to collect the name Jerry. In Japan, there's a cutscene before the game starts where you learn about Jerry and his brother Tom, who like rule a kingdom. And Tom's really mad at his brother, so he hires a wizard to take Jerry out by turning him into a blue jelly bean. And you have to go through these, like, destroy towns, because Tom's a horrible ruler, uh, and collect your name Jerry so that you can eventually become Jerry again to fight your brother Tom. Instead of translating these cutscenes, uh, they just completely removed them in North America version. So you have zero context of why you are a jelly bean. <laughs> Literally, the game starts, it says smart ball, and then it cuts to world 1A, and you are jelly bean. It's literally, you. it could have been anything. You could have literally been anything, but you're just a jelly bean collecting balls that you can toss at people. Uh, is, does the game hold up? I don't think the game was poorly made. And I think that the game is a quick playthrough. There's no, um, there's no password system. There's no way to save the game beyond save slots. So you have to like really be dedicated to beating this game if you want to beat the game, or else you have to just start all over again the next time you play. I think it's fine as a mascot platformer. It's not the best mascot platformer on the SNES, and it's certainly not the worst mascot platformer on the SNES. I think it's decidedly mediocre. So if you need another mascot platformer because you've played all of them, you can check out Smartball. Next week, Zach, you can play the Olympic Summer Games for the SNES. I'm sure I'll get the gold. <laughs> I knew you were excited about that game. Now, thank you for listening, everybody. Uh, this is going to be our Half-Life 2 episode. I thought you were going to say this will be our last episode. <laughs> this will be our last episode. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening, everybody. You can find us on social medias. Uh, we are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitch, all at Classic Gaming Brothers. We are also on Twitter at CG Brothers Pod. You can also email us. You can send it to Zoom, as it were, at ClassicGamingBrothers at gmail.com. <laughs> I just referenced that that old show that I don't think if somebody who's older or younger didn't watch that show, they'll think that I'm talking about Zoom, the platform, not the, <laughs> the Z-mail. Yeah. 
Z mail. Send it to Zoom. <laughs> anyway, uh, you can also uh, follow us on the socials and send us private messages or whatever. We don't care. That's it. Uh, oh, you, if you want to listen to us, you can find us wherever any podcast is listen listenable. We are usually there. Uh, Zach, is there anything that I'm missing? Don't play games like my brother. And don't play games like my brother. I've been Zach. And I've been Seth. And we have been the classic gaming brothers. That's right. Time, Dr. Freeman. Is it really that time again? It seems as if you only just arrived. You've done a great deal in a small time span. You've done so well, in fact, that I've received some interesting offers for your services. Ordinarily, I wouldn't contemplate them, but these are extraordinary times. Hmm?